This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm Randy Moore, and Pastor Randy Moore and Pastor Andy Payton is back after having last week off. Good to have you back on the podcast, Pastor Andy. It's good to be back, Randy. All right, here's what we're going to do today. We've got a lot we want to do. Because you were out uh, doing church work out of town last week, we had a guest, and that was fun. Um, Jerry was here, and uh, that was great. And I think we'll have other guests uh, in the future, so we look forward to that. But I know that you wanted to come back and dig a little deeper into the last time you preached when you preached on good works, and and then you talked about holiness and sanctification uh, comes into play right there. So we're going to do some of that. While you were gone, actually you weren't gone, but I was in the pulpit. You had come back from your trip, uh, but I was in the pulpit, and I preached on a parable from the Gospel of Matthew. I thought we would touch on that and delve a little deeper into that. And then you'll be back in the pulpit this Sunday, and you'll be talking uh, about Article Number 11, which is super irrigation, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So we've got a full plate today. So let's just jump in, but let's not uh, let's not skip over how it is with our souls. And I'll start uh, this week. Um, I'm really looking forward to the next few days. I'm going to get together with some of my college buddies, and it's something that a few years ago we decided that we just needed to do. That. We were getting of the age where, you know, it, these relationships are really, really important and we want to take some time out. So I'm going to go up to northern Indiana. One of my buddies has a place on Lake Wawasee up there uh, west of Fort Wayne. And we're going to play a couple of rounds of golf and tell some stories that we've told hundreds of times and, and laugh just as hard as we've laughed every time we've told those stories. And so that's good for my soul. I'm going to get away and be with some buddies that have been buddies for a long time. That sounds like a fantastic time, Randy. I'm kind of envious of you. Um, being around your old buddies and telling old stories is certainly good for one's soul. Um, for me, I guess, uh, was help my soul prosper this week. Um, was kind of an accident, really. I I run in the mornings, and I forgot my headphones at home at my office. So uh, the other morning, I did have my headphones when I was going to go running. It forced me obviously not to listen to music or podcast in the morning when I was jogging. And there was this moment where I was jogging along and I just had this like overwhelming sense of God's presence as I did that. I was listening to the crickets still, it was dark. And then I could hear the birds and the sun was coming up and I'm like, how do I miss this every morning I go jogging? And so I guess the what the thing that's made or helped my soul prosper this week is just that that sense of um, quieting oneself and being aware. And not being distracted. Mm-hmm. I use my AirPods a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of music. I wonder why it is that we feel the need to be so distracted because you were forced into this kind of attention and it paid benefits for you. Yeah, I was forced into presence, <laughs> yeah. right? And right. and then the odd thing that happened after after the running incident was... Like I just wanted to turn my radio off of my truck and turn the music off of my truck and right. and enjoy that silence again and that presence again. It it felt more alive to me than all the chatter. Yeah. Speaking about my college buddies, what you just said reminded me of something. My first car was a 1974 Mercury Comet, 
and it didn't have a radio. It didn't have air conditioning. I think it had a heater. So I would drive back and forth from Evansville to Muncie without any radio. Those were some of the best times for processing life. Again, I was forced to do it. Mm-hmm. We need to do it deliberately. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. and it, it, it takes intentionality to get it done, typically, or an accident where you forget your headphones at the <laughs> office. <laughs> right. Okay, for, for the listeners out there, we have been for the last you know, 10 weeks or so looking at the 25 articles of religion. Those uh, came out of the 39 articles of religion for the Church of England. John Wesley, uh, as the Methodist movement was getting started in, in America, took those 39 articles and uh, edited those down to 25. Those are now a doctrinal standard for us, and so Pastor Andy has been preaching a sermon series on those articles. Uh, the last time he preached, uh, he preached on Article 10, and that was Of Good Works. I'll read the description uh, as it is supplied there in those articles. It says, Although good works, which are the first fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and spring out of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree is discerned by its fruit. Um, I thought I might try my hand at just doing a quick translation of this because the language is not exactly the kind of language that we use in the 21st century that that Wesley used uh, back in his day. So, although good works, which are the fruits of faith, okay, so he's identifying the fact that uh, these fruits, um, they, they grow out of our faith and they follow after justification. So, once we've been accepted, that uh, even though that doesn't, uh, the works don't, put away our sins or we're not forgiven uh, by that, and they certainly would not um, lead to um, avoiding God's judgment necessarily, but at the same time, uh, they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ. And here's the thing, they spring out of a true and lively faith. That reminds us of what James said so well in, in his letter, and so much that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree is discerned by its fruit. And so if you've got the faith, you've got the fruit. Yeah, I, the way I describe it is as we become aware of our relationship with God, as we accept our acceptance in Christ, of course that changes us. Of course that makes a difference. And it influences the way we live our lives. A real faith, if it's genuine, is going to lead to some changes in the way we live and interact with the world around us. And so it makes sense. This article makes sense in the sense that um, it's defining like faith is not just a series of ideas about God in our life. If it's genuine and we really entered into that relationship with God, then it's going to affect how we are and live in this world. The word holiness does not appear in the article, but holiness is what you decided to preach on. Clearly, it's in there. And um, I think we avoid that word, uh, holiness. We think of being holier than thou. And we think, no, 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 I don't really want to go there or be that or, or seen that way. But holiness, which another word would be sanctification, which we're on this, uh, this Wesleyan way of salvation, prevenient grace, uh, justifying grace, sanctifying grace. There's where holiness comes in. And so we're moving ever closer to God's purpose for us. And so it really shouldn't be a bad word for us because it was a huge word for Wesley. Yeah, I'm, 
we've been described, the Methodist and other denominations that kind of spring out of the, the Wesleyan way, we have been described as the holiness movement. And you're right. There's been some abuses of that movement over the last couple hundred years. And a lot of times it kind of morphs into this holier than thou type of religion or Christianity that, um, quite frankly, a lot of us are trying to get away from. But even with that said, the idea of holiness is a very positive word because what it suggests is that we should be optimistic about what God can do in our life. We're optimistic about what God's grace can accomplish in us and that we could be set free to love. And deep down, anyone, I think, desires to be set free to love. We all desire to love. And so what holiness is pointing to is the possibility of that. In your sermon, you uh, outlined four basics to help us wrap our minds around this. And you said, first, God loves us. Second, we struggle to live into it. Uh, Sin is a state of being, and we're disconnected because of the awareness of the other. Third, we reestablish connection through faith. And you quoted Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. And four, we then move away from that wariness of the other and come alive to God and to love of God and and of neighbor. There it is in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and, And the reason why it's so important to kind of continue back to these themes and go back to these themes is that um, for me, it's helpful to keep what is the point in my mind? And the point here is, I'm using the word transformation a lot today. The point here is the transformation of our lives and this world today because of our faith. And the best way I can describe that is a movement from wariness, which emerges from a loss of connection with the greater reality. Um, And we reestablish that connection, of course, through faith. And then once that connection with the bigger reality, God is reestablished, it leads us to a sense of love of others. We we start to live an interconnected life, which is what holiness is all about. We are loving people for the sake of love of God in them. And so this is uh, the spiritual journey in Christianity 101. You talked about some passages of Scripture. You moved into speaking about some of the things that John Wesley said and did, and then you made practical applications uh, for the church. So from the Bible, you pointed out Leviticus 19, 2, speak to all the congregation of the Israelites and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, is holy. You shall be holy. I mean, we, we have such this, uh, through the Protestant tradition, this awareness of our sin that this sounds impossible, that we should be holy. Right. And, and, and the question you put back to that kind of notion is, well, why would God ask us to do something that's not possible? Right. God says we should be holy as God is holy. So well, what's that mean then? And the word holy here means to be set apart. And in my sermon, I kind of broke down. There's two different camps of what that can mean. Um, there's some folks that are going to interpret set apart from. So like holiness is about avoiding certain things set apart from. Um, but really Christian holiness, I would suggest, is about set apart for. We're set apart for our neighbors. We're set apart for the work of justice in the world. We're set apart for um, entering into that relationship with the God of love. Yeah, it's saying yes to some things, not so much saying no to others. It's, it's, not, a, it's not just about abstinence, right? No, no. It's about, it's a, it's, yeah, it starts with the yes. And, and in the sermon, I clarify, like, of course, there's some moments where you have to say no. 
There's some things we have to avoid if we're going to live that holy life. But even then, it started with a yes. I'm affirming the life of this person. I'm, a, I'm affirming that this is God's way for the world. So therefore, I'm going to say no to certain things. Um, it's a much different type of motivation. We're not separating ourselves from. Instead, we're separating ourselves for. And we're trying to be agents of God's creative activity in the world today. Uh, you talked about John Wesley, of course, and um, you quoted, or at least you referred to, one of his sermons, The Scripture Way of Salvation. And I think it's important to say here, for those who might not know this, this isn't a sermon. Wesley's sermons weren't sermons in the same sense that, that we preach sermons exactly. His sermons became part of the doctrinal standards for the church that was getting going. So not only did he preach these, sometimes he just wrote these down. He wanted those to be there so that preachers could use them. So I don't know how many people are going to come back in 100 years and use our sermons that way. I mean, we're lucky if somebody pays attention you know, today and it sticks with them for a little while. Um, but when, you're, when we're bringing in Wesley sermons, we're bringing in what it means to be Methodist. And this, uh, and this particular sermon has been pointed to as one of his very best, uh, the, the Scripture Way of Salvation. Yeah, it's a very concise summary of his, uh, what he calls the Way of Salvation. And it's written towards, uh, getting towards the end of his life. So this is after he's had a lot of experience in the Wesleyan Methodist revival He's talked to countless people's, people about their experience of God's grace and love within their lives. And what this sermon really is, is he distills that down in a way where he just really lays it out. Um, this is what um, he's about. This is what the movement's about. And uh, it's really one of my favorite sermons he's come up with just because it's so, well, to the point. And you can kind of get what he's getting at, for lack of a better term. Right, and this is where we get that ordo salutis or that order of salvation, the prevenient grace, justifying grace, again, sanctifying grace, and perfecting grace. And, and you paraphrase, paraphrase it as, uh, you know, faith is a divine evidence of the Spirit all around us, and faith starts when we stop living our lives as if God were somewhere else. Uh, faith is Jesus' self-giving life, and it's, and it's not a head thing. It is a head thing, but it doesn't stop there. It's also a heart thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Wesley's definition of faith in this sermon is once I saw this and then I started to realize what he was getting at, it, it was, I don't know, it was like a whole new software system for me. Um, he, he, he defines faith as really a sense of God's presence in and all around us. He's, he sounds like a mystic almost okay. in the way he describes this. It, like it's, faith then starts when we stop living as if God is somewhere else. But it's not that we just believe in God in general. We believe that God is loving us in a Christ-like way, and that's what begins to set us apart, in a sense, as Christians. And of course, if you believe that God is in and around us and running through all of humanity and creation, that will lead to a change of heart and life. Yeah, it makes that transformational change, as you've mentioned, uh, that makes a real difference in our lives and in, uh, in the lives of those that we associate with and those that we minister to. And you, you referred to Wesley's work in, uh, in abolition, and uh, you talked about 1739 and, and the port city of Bristol where there was an active slave trade. And, and so Wesley and those he was preaching with, they were actually beaten because they were uh, preaching abolition. And then you illustrated that uh, by describing the so-called new room. Yeah, I mean, 
this faith is not simply, I'm going to go be nice to everyone now. It, it cost us something, and it certainly cost John Wesley and Charles Wesley, too. Uh, they were beaten and ridiculed for their work for abolition in their day. And then um, when they had to build, they called it a preaching house because they, they weren't technically <laughs> starting a new church, but they, right. they were asked to build a, a new preaching house. They built it in such a way in which there was a barrier, kind of like a fence between where the preacher was and the people were, so that if they were attacked, the, the preacher could make a fast getaway. This is, I mean, this is inspiring, but it's also some intense stuff to stop and think about. These guys, they were laying it on the line for what they believed in. And uh, of course, as Christians today, we stop and think, well, where is God telling us that we should lay ourselves on the line today? And I'll let the listeners decide what that means for them. But there's a lot of stuff out there that once we start to think about loving all people for the sake of the love of God, um, that's a love that doesn't know any borders. That's a love that doesn't know any boundaries. That's a love that includes all people. It's truly inclusive. And that means we can't just turn a blind eye to some of the injustices and suffering and pain in our world today. Again, I'll let the listeners decide what that means for them, but um, it's not going to let us off the hook. And our example is Christ. You, you know, John Wesley had to have Christ in mind. And uh, what Christ did and how he put his life on the line and actually ended up dying for what he thought was important. The Apostle Paul, uh, you know, thought it was his role to suffer like, you know, Christ suffered. Not that we, you know, intentionally bring on suffering, but if we're going to do the kinds of things that we're talking about, it inevitably is going to lead uh, to suffering. So, yeah. Um, that's John Wesley. Uh, faith is trust. And then um, you talked about the fact that faith, um, the opposite of faith is anxiety. And that uh, what you want is an open rather than a closed heart to be trusting and available because life is a sacred gift. Yeah. And, and people are going to say, well, if you're just going to love God and all people, that means that you're going to be taken advantage of. And I'm going to say, Yes, absolutely. They they killed Jesus. They took advantage of Jesus to truly live out the Christian life. It, it, it is a life of sacrifice for the sake of the love of God in a person. Even if you believe that they are enemy of God, you still love them for the sake of the love of God. Um, this is Holiness 101. Um, and this is Holiness really 101 as John Wesley defined it as well. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, let's move on. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and I want to talk a little bit about and get your take on my sermon from last Sunday. We took a break from the 25 Articles of Religion. I went back to the lectionary, and the lectionary lesson came from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, This year is the year of, of Matthew. And so it was from the 20th chapter and the first 16 verses, and this is one of the great parables from Jesus, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And let's talk a little bit about parables themselves before we delve into it, um, because it's important um, to understand how parables work, because Jesus used parables, you know, so much. It is interesting that he used them uh, in in the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but you really don't see them in the gospel of John. That in itself would be an interesting study. But without a doubt, he uses this form of communication. And another thing that's interesting is that you look at the, uh, the history of interpretation of Scripture, there was a time when parables were seen as 
allegories. They, they all had these, this allegorical meaning. Every single detail in a parable had to, was pointing to something else or represented something else. Then people said, no, 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 you really can't do that with, with the parables. The parables should just all have one idea. Well, that didn't work either. And the, and the answer is somewhere down the middle. But Jesus um, used these as a way of communicating metaphorically. Mm-hmm. And um, they're just really, they're really fascinating. And they kind of operate like a joke. Um, you know, there's a, there are familiar references. That's why he used them. And so uh, the people who were hearing these parables for the first time uh, understood the references. And so they understood when the, when they got hit with the punchline, the surprise, the twist, and that happens a lot in parables. So these aren't simple stories that were told to peasant people. These are serious stories uh, that contain, you know, deep theology. Um, you have any reaction to what a parable really is and how Jesus used them? Well, I, one thing I would throw out there is, is number one, these parables were being shared with folks. Jesus was sharing these parables with folks. 2,000 years ago. And I think at the time in which he shared the parables, people probably got pretty much what he was talking about. Like, um, it made sense to them. It connected with them. As you said, he used the language of the time. Um, And so I I feel like he was sharing um, plain truth for plain people because most of the folks were peasants at that time. Uh, Fast forward to the current, our current context and the much has happened since the days of Jesus, and I think that becomes the the challenge for interpreting these parables today. Uh, we didn't live in his day, right? And so we try to make sense out of it, and then that's where you kind of get off on these tangents that you're alluding to. Yeah, um, they can take us all types of different places, especially whenever uh, you're dealing with metaphor. You, the, the reader starts to read in different understandings and things within the parable. But yeah. yeah, this one's a great one, though. I love this parable. Yeah, it's a long parable, and we won't read it here. I'll just sort of paraphrase it. Uh, Jesus said, as an introduction to the parable, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he prefaced a lot of his par- parables that way because the kingdom was what Jesus was was all about. And, uh, you know, that was the main focus of his preaching. And so he came to usher in the kingdom. And uh, our, you know, the way we look at it is the kingdom did arrive with Jesus. Uh, we call it now and not yet because we look forward to its fulfillment and the end of time. It is an eschatological idea, um, but it most certainly is something that he has ushered in now. And I referred to the fact that as I studied this parable, I kept thinking about the Lord's Prayer. It, it just kept ringing back into my mind, and so I made those connections during the sermon. And one of those has to do with the fact that, um, you know, you know the, the Lord's Prayer says, um, you know, our Father in heaven, um, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that right there tells us that, yeah, it's happening in heaven, but it's also happening on earth and it's happening uh, off in the future and it and it's happening now. Also, uh, I got into the fact that the uh, Lord's Prayer talks about this, this daily bread. And I said that we can sort of quickly, you know, spiritualize that and sometimes over-spiritualize it. The spiritual nature of it is there. Clearly, we can see that daily bread as being uh, Jesus, the bread of life. 
but we can also see it in a much more practical way in that we pray for our daily sustenance. And I, and I referred to the fact that in Jesus's time, they were under the Roman Empire. About 3% of the people were among the elites and they ran everything else. The, the 97% were, if, if they weren't poor, they were just living on the line. And so they would be fortunate to, to have daily bread. So we made those connections there. But to back up and do a bit of a uh, an outline of the of the parable. Uh, there is the the vineyard owner, and he goes out at six o'clock in the morning and hires workers to go into the vineyard. And then this vineyard owner comes back only three hours later at nine o'clock and hires more workers. And he comes back every three hours until it gets to be five o'clock, one hour before closing time, and he goes back and he hires even more workers. Then he brings in his manager to pay these people, and in the beginning they'd been they'd been promised through a contract one denarius, which was the daily wage, the daily bread uh, connection right there. And he said, pay them, but go from the last to the first. Had he paid them first to the last, there wouldn't have been a controversy because the first who worked 12 hours would have taken their denarius, gone home, they wouldn't have known what happened after that. But he said, intentionally I think, pay the last first. And he paid the last, those one-hour workers, that same one denarius. And those who had worked for 12 hours got very, very upset about that. And what I said was that grace is amazing, but it's also infuriating if you worked 12 hours and you get the same pay that the one-hour worker got. But at the end of the day, what I got out of this, and we can talk about other messages because there are many other messages that have been taken from this, but what I said was that the kingdom of God is where everybody has enough. Everybody has enough. And that vineyard owner, that's Jesus. We should see Jesus in that. The vineyard owner in that day would not have been the kind of a person that would have been there at 6 o'clock in the morning in the first place. Certainly wouldn't have gone back to see if there was anybody else who needed work at, you know, at 9 o'clock and at noon and at 3 that's Jesus. That's the compassion and generosity of Jesus who continually goes back until everyone has work, not a handout, a job. And so um, I love that parable for those reasons. I like, to find, I like to find those things that can be applied in a very practical way. Is there a spiritual message there? Of course there is. And a lot of people have seen this parable as one that says salvation can come at the last moment like it did for the thief on the cross or it can come in the very beginning of life. That's a perfectly acceptable way of reading the parable and understanding it, but it's not, it's not the only way. Yeah, it's not, it, well, that's the parable. You know, there's more than one interpretation yeah. and really a lot of times there's more than one right answer, even though I will say, I think some answers are wrong. Right. <laughs> Sometimes the people we just we just miss the parable altogether, and I'm certainly guilty of that. I've done that over the years. Um, I think for me, when it comes to this parable or other parables, um, what you alluded to is helpful. Jesus' mission in coming to this earth basically is to bring heaven to earth, and not earth necessarily to heaven. Mm-hmm. In Christianity today, we think a lot of times that Jesus was just sent so that when we die, we can go to heaven. But his mission, his goal, as he taught us to pray, is that the things on earth would become as they are in heaven. His mission is to bring heaven to earth. As we look at this parable, uh, for me, uh, the spiritual meaning is everyone has been given God's presence equally without measure. 
you know, the worst of the worst, the best of the best, God's given God's presence to you. And this comes from the Gospel of Matthew. You see this reflected in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus clearly says on the Sermon on the Mount, God sends the rains on the just and the unjust. God's pre- And of course, he's talking about God's presence there. God's presence poured out on everybody. Thus, that is a transformation on how we should, and this is where you get into the weeds, <laughs> that should lead to a transformation on how we organize ourselves as a society, if we really believe that. And that's what I said toward the conclusion of my sermon. I said, how, how do we make sure, if this is not just for a reward in heaven, but it's about what happens today, how do we make sure that everybody has enough? And I said, I don't know. It is a complicated issue. But if we could see that everybody got enough, it would be revolutionary. It would be transformational mm-hmm. because not everybody has enough. They didn't then, and they certainly they, they don't now. But I just know that if there is an answer, it has to do with uh, following, following Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's not just for someday, it's for now. And we're called to do that. We talked about what Wesley did to make a difference in ending slavery. It's that kind of a thing, bringing the kingdom to earth now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, a story that comes to my mind is you're talking about bringing the kingdom to earth now is a, a missionary by the name of East Daly Jones, who was a missionary... Um, the first part, really, of the 20th century. So he would have been a pastor and a missionary in the world throughout both world wars. And I remember when I was reading his um, biography, it talked about how he went to the world leaders of his time and said, what if, rather than investing in weapons of war, we invested in the poor in these countries, and then there would be no reason for us to fight? Mm-hmm. And of course they didn't take him seriously. And of course, what happened next was we erupted into violence. And E. Stanley, um, again and again, affirmed, he said, the gospel would work if it was implemented. And Jesus' teaching would work if we but took it seriously. And I have to wonder, like, how seriously would we take that today? Um, If you and I would preach on that, say something like that, you know, I... And you have to wonder, why not try it? Because the rest of it hasn't worked up to this point. I mean, if history is an indicator, um, when the, the haves are getting more and the have-nots are getting less, of, of course that's going to lead to violence. Mm-hmm. Of course it's going to lead to, dare I say, immigration problems. Of course people are going to pick up arms against one another. The work of the kingdom um, is not altogether convenient for the powers that be. We would be dismissed as overly idealistic, but I'm sorry it, if it's idealism, it's idealism, but it's it's who we are as as followers of this Christ. Yeah, wait, it, <laughs> I'm getting wound up here already, but it's what we pray. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. how can you honestly pray the Lord's Prayer and not believe this? Right. Give us our daily, our daily bread. That's not, we not spiritualize that, you're right. You're talking about hungry people. Let's forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Let's, let's not spiritualize that. Let's live for peace now. Deliver us from evil. What is evil? Well, it's, it's live spelled backwards. It's life in reverse. Let's, let's stop with the death-dealing ways and give it a try. That's, that's the gospel, man. Like, 
Amen. Amen. <laughs> and and we could keep we could keep going, but let's go. Let's wrap it up with a very uh, just a little bit of a preview of this Sunday's message. You'll be back in the pulpit. You'll be back on the twenty five articles of religion, and you'll be up to Article eleven, and it is of works. We're still talking about works of works of supererogation. I don't know that I've ever had the opportunity to use that word before we started looking at this. I don't know that I ever will again necessarily, but but it's an important one. It's in these articles, and here's what it says. Voluntary works besides, over and above God's commandments, which they call works of supererogation, cannot be taught without arrogancy and impiety. For by them men do declare that they do not only render unto God as much as they are bound to do, but they do more for his sake than of bounden duty is required. Whereas Christ saith plainly, when you have done all that is commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. Good luck with this one. Say your, say your prayers for me, please, Randy. <laughs> um, so as I look at this article, the thing that's come to my mind is like, it's something we've all experienced in the sense that religious people sometimes have a, a tendency to take it too far. Mm-hmm. And we aim a little too high, and then we become legalistic and arrogant. On the flip side, sometimes we aim too low, and we don't believe in the possibility of transformation. And I'm going to go back to the invitation of the gospel is to really aim for the right thing as Christ taught us. And I'm going to return to this idea of what Christ taught us to aim for as children of God and a people of God and as his followers. What does it look like for us to live an obedient life? Mm-hmm. I think, too, that, um, yeah, this kind of... Um, almost like the word super, right? Mm-hmm. That that can register with this, like these super works, you know, these over and above works. I think they probably would naturally happen if they have their source uh, in in the love of God and in the, in the love of neighbor. I, I, I think that absolutely could happen. I think what he's talking about is a, is a kind of a, uh, you know, a phony uh, effort or, or, or a phony trying to, trying to work things out or, or impress yeah. uh, people. Well, it... If you really start to get the heart of this, it's like it is about the heart. It's yeah. about the intent. Yeah. And so you could have two people doing the very same things. One person comes away feeling puffed up and better than because of that which they did. Mm-hmm. The other person comes away humble and grateful for the opportunity. And and therein lies the difference between religion used well and religion that can lead us to some deadly places. Mm-hmm. And so the folks that wrote these articles, I think, well, they, they were listening deeply to the human experience and the tendency um, for folks to, to miss the intent and the heart behind it. And when the heart's wrong, you could be doing what looks like the best thing in the world and and be missing the mark completely. Excellent preview. That's going to be this Sunday as Pastor Andy continues his sermon series on the on the articles of religion and article number 11 of the works of supererogation. Pastor Andy, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. We appreciate it so much. You're invited to join us here at church or, or you can join us virtually. Um, We want you to have a great week, and uh, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week. 
This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.